This is Caught in the Act with Tim Clark. Welcome back. It was the night when Australia was to unite in celebration of the best Olympic Games ever, of the athletes of the country, the first day of October in the year 2000. That day also became the last night of Billy Grierson's life, a gypsy joker bikey shot dead by a sniper around a goldfields campfire. A fatal bullet and a fateful shot which changed lives, careers and reputations and fundamentally shifted this state's attitudes to crime and punishment. Joining me this week to dissect the murder of Billy Grierson and the terrifying fallout which followed is the West's bikey whisperer, chief reporter and host of Up Late, Ben Harvey. Thanks so much for joining us, Harves. My family loves that nickname. 25 years... Interviewing premiers, <laughs> prime ministers, business leaders, celebrities, and I'm remembered as the guy who had an ice cream with, with Troy, Troy McCandy. Yes, it's the blokes with the leather and the patches that uh, tend to stick out in, in, in various forms of life in this state, and you're the one that has been following them closest, I suppose. 25 years of following bikies, and I've learnt one thing about them. There's three types Mm -hmm. of bikies when you distill it down. You've got the complete hapless idiots who just get dragged into this lifestyle without really realising what they're getting into. Mm -hmm. They are one percenters in the truest sense of the word. I'm talking arithmetic, (laughs) remedial English, the lot. Then you've got a very rare type of bikie and that's the man who genuinely wants a sense of brotherhood and family who's missing something in his life. Like it's, it's, a, it's a misplaced desire, but it's a genuine one. They just want to belong. And then the third type of bikey is the most dangerous type of bikey, mm-hmm. and that is your old school dirty denim career criminal. Mm-hmm. Incredibly dangerous, dangerous men. And it's that third cohort of bikey that we're going to be talking about today because we're talking about the Gypsy Joker Outlaw Motorcycle Club, which in the 1990s and 2000s was one of the most feared, secretive, powerful and bloodthirsty organised crime institutions in Australia. Mm. And they were dotted all over the state. I mean, there was obviously a, uh, a chapter in Perth, but the one that we're going to talk about today was... Uh, you know, b- born out of um, red dirt, uh, skimpies, and um, you know, live fast, die young type of scenario, really. That's right, the goldfields. Mm. The goldfields, which also happened to be on the a juncture of highways that went from the east coast mm. to the west coast, mm. highways that are used to transport various things, Tim. Mm. Yeah. Those things not always being... Yeah cuddly toys not just nappies no that's right so as we say it was in the heart of western australia's historic gold fields that this story came out of and the tiny town site of orobanda that town emerged from the red dirt in around 1893 when gold was miraculously pulled up from that red dirt hence the name the spanish for band of gold banda de oro Within years, more than 2,000 prospectors and those prospering from them lived in that little place, 
which had gone from one horse to two stores, two butcher shops, a town hall, a post office, a police station, several churches, boarding houses, dining halls and billiard saloons. And, of course, a hotel, a pub, the Orabanda Inn, which was built from stone and brick in 1911. That square hotel dominated the township, standing sentry for those passing through and socially central for those who stayed, who included Robert Hancock and his son, Leslie, whose toil at the Wentworth deposit at nearby Grant's Patch produced hundreds of ounces of precious metal and opal. Leslie's son, Don, was also put to work in the heat and the dust after he left school until he joined the WA police force in 1959 and went to work locking up those intent on stealing some of Kalgoorlie's fields of gold. Years in the gold-stealing detention squad prepared Hancock for his move upwards to the Criminal Investigation Bureau, from the suburbs into the city with the Fatality Squad investigating motor manslaughters. Then on to the Stocks Dealing Squad, the Consorters, the Break and Enter Squad and Fremantle CIB. And as the jobs got bigger, so Hancock's hair got whiter, earning him the nickname the Silver Fox, who caught his biggest prey when he was assigned the job of finding those who swindled the Perth Mint out of $650,000 of gold in 1982. The police said the culprits were the Mickelberg brothers, Peter, Ray and Brian. They were Hancock's prize scalp so far. But the brothers insisted they had been set up, framed by the coppers. Even during their appeal, Don Hancock was insisting they were guilty and given the job he had always craved. Chief of the CIB, the Silver Fox, now the top dog. Halves, give us your memories, impressions uh, of Don Hancock, the copper. I don't get to say this very often, but he was before my time. <laughs> he had actually retired as a police officer by the time I became a, uh, a cadet reporter mm. in the late 1990s. Mm. Uh, but you actually didn't need to meet Don Hancock to know about Don Hancock because this was a man whose reputation preceded him everywhere he went. You felt like you knew the man because you'd seen him so often in newspapers, magazines, on television. Mm -hmm. He was straight out of casting for a 1970s, 1980s cop show. Tall, broad shoulder, as you said, that shock of silver hair. He had fists the size of cauliflowers, his <laughs> commanding presence. One of those guys that should have his own theme tune as he walks that, into a room. Very right? much. Yeah. That was... That was him. It was the personality that he developed and he just reveled in it. He was a hero cop to thousands of serving and, and, and past serving police officers. Mm. As was often the case in the 1970s and 1980s, a lot of his best work was done in the shadows. Mm. And we didn't realise just how much work he did in the shadows until we heard about that Perth Mint swindle, mm. the circumstances of which you just described. Yeah. As much as he built a, a, a lot, you know, the second half of his of his career on on that collar, 
and the all, all the publicity that came with it, the gold that started turning up at various public uh, TV studios sent to mm-hmm. sent to a certain r- reporter who we both know and very much respect. There was still it still smelled a bit the Michelbergs or like you couldn't really scrub away the, the the stain of the of the original inquiry it wasn't a clean cut no. investigation no. by any stretch of the imagination this was before uh, wholesale CCTV it was before DNA it was before we had uh, telephones that could put you in to within a meter of a certain place at a certain time but you had telephone books that could help you maybe get a... You still used telephone books to mm. get confessions yeah. back then. <laughs> it was a happier time yeah. for a cop, not so much for a crimp. No, exactly. And, uh, you know, eventually what, what happened with the Micklebergs and, and what came out about what had happened in the Mickelberg investigation was, you know, it eventually brought Hancock's career to quite a bruising end in, in terms of his time in the police force. Uh, it became very evident that Don Hancock fitted up the Mickle brothers for the crime. Mm. Uh, everyone says that the Micklebergs probably did it mm. and he just couldn't quite get the case over the line, so he just filled in a few blanks, mm. which was often the case. <laughs> so Hancock's passing out parade after a three-decade career in the WA police was, was pretty quiet. Uh, no headlines, um, unlike a lot of things that he'd done while he was in the force. No exit interviews, with certainly with any media. And then in 1995, it emerged he'd actually returned to his golden roots. He'd bought the Aurobanda Inn with a view to restoring it to its former luster. Um, his ambition was to revive his ancestral home, um, and it stretched to a plan to basically bring the place back to life, bring the prospector's hall of fame to the tiny hamlet. Um, and while that plan was foiled, a centenary celebration was planned and hoped for to bring thousands of visitors to the town, drawn by um, the revived and formerly famous Orabanda race weekend, which had last been run in 1948. Such was Hancock's determination that he literally shifted rocks by hand himself to make that racetrack in that tiny hamlet acceptable to horses from all over the state. The rudimentary racetrack was actually carved into the dirt directly opposite his lovingly restored inn. Uh, Straights on either side um, of top and bottom bends which stretched around a track uh, the length of about 600 metres. Um, a long way and a previous lifetime away from Perth, where in 1999, the surviving Mickelberg brothers failed in their appeal. They were eventually cleared in 2004, but just for that day, back in 1999, Hancock swapped his boots and shorts for a suit and tie and went to court to see his old mates. He actually tried to slip quietly out of that old Supreme Court building as he had his old job, but reporters spotted him and asked him for a comment. Go and talk to your scumbag mates, he uh, initially said, referring to the Micklebergs. And with Peter Mickleberg in hot pursuit, um, he said, uh, he just called me a scumbag, um, and Mr Hancock added, and a criminal. 
For 200 paces, the pair faced off, um, exchanging insults and barbs before Hancock disappeared again in a puff of gold dust back to the inn and his kin. So on the day of the Sydney Olympics opening ceremony in September 2000, Orobanda had its own major event, the fifth picnic race organised by Hancock, attracting thousands through his proud little town. Two weeks later, the rough-hewn racetrack was again occupied, but this time by some less than welcome visitors. Harves, outline for us what happened in Orobanda on the night of October the 1st, 2000. A handful of gypsy jokers had rolled into town in the early afternoon. They'd started drinking. I think there was about six of them. Mm-hmm. They had a few, and they started getting lippy, as bikies do, when they've been drinking. And there was an argument between Don Hancock and these gypsy jokers. And the cause of the argument was one of them had mouthed off about a waitress or a bartender who happened to be Don's daughter. Mm-hmm. Now, you just don't do that. Not to Don Hancock. No. They had words. The bikies apparently said, fair cop, and they walked out. They set up camp a couple of hundred metres away and they continued drinking. Night fell. It was around 7.30 at night, so it was completely pitch black. They heard a crack and they thought it was actually coming from the fire, so they didn't think anything of it. Then they heard a second shot and they knew that they were actually being fired upon, Mm. so they all hit the deck. Billy Grierson caught that second bullet in his torso and he started bleeding. Mm. They rushed him onto a ute, I think it was, or maybe a flatbed truck that was in the area, and they drove him to a nearby nickel mine. Um, It was the Coors nickel mine, I think, and by the time they got there, he'd actually bled out, and he was dead. Mm. At this point um, in Orobanda's history, there were less than 30 permanent residents, so the pool of immediate suspects was, was pretty small. It was... Very, very, very small. Don Hancock, being the man he was, couldn't stay quiet for long, insisting in public that he had not shot Billy Grierson. But he did confirm there had been an altercation with the group of jokers before the retired big dog detective asked the group of bearded gentlemen to leave. Hancock, along with every single other resident of Orobanda, subsequently left town as a fear of reprisal attacks by the gang simmered. And Billy Grierson's funeral, a week after his murder, shut down the centre of Kalgoorlie on a busy Saturday afternoon as the funeral cortege of Chrome and Black followed his coffin through town towards the cemetery at nearby Boulder. Those gathered at that funeral heard of a fun-loving, affable man who was the youngest of 14 children of a Victorian war veteran. Grierson was a mechanic who worked on mine sites around Kalgoorlie, a father of two and divorced from their mother, which had prompted the connection with the Gypsy Jokers, and a father-to-be with his partner Nicole, 22 weeks pregnant. A week after that funeral... And ten minutes after the Orobanda Inn had shut its doors on a smattering of Friday night clients, a bomb went off. Two, in fact. One resting on a window of the pub and another near the front entrance. The historic inn was decimated. 
and the message had also been sent. The Jokers were not joking about revenge. This time, Don Hancock could not ignore the risks, and after being told by his detective successes that his safety could not be assured if he stayed in town, he packed up and left, along with his wife and son, never to return. Halves, you sometimes become so immersed in details of a story like this that you actually lose sight or become a little bit immune to the bigger picture. So we've got a bikey shot in cold blood in the dark and a former CIB chief being quietly accused of his murder, who then has his beloved old pub blown up and then burned down by bandits. I mean... I just read it out, and I've just written it last week, but you couldn't write it, and, no. you, and, and, and sometimes it stops in your mouth because you can't believe what you're saying. It is something out of the Wild West, <laughs> um, and this was in the early noughties. The severity of the situation was driven home to me. I wasn't actually in Kalgoorlie at the time, but during Billy Grierson's funeral, there was a very strong rumour that a police officer was going to get shot in the spine. That's what we were talking about. Uh, and the hundreds of cops that had flooded the streets of Kalgoorlie because there were gypsy jokers drinking everywhere, there were bikies drinking everywhere, mm-hmm. often shoulder to shoulder with cops, mm-hmm. I might say. Mm-hmm. It was a very, very tense, tense situation. And nothing like we had seen in modern Western Australia. This kind of thing didn't happen. Cops or retired cops just didn't get shot. They didn't get blown up. No one messed with the boys in blue. This mm. was the kind of thing you'd see in Mexico, in, in Colombia, mm. not in a first world country like in, in Australia. I'm reading through the paper archives to prepare for today. It did make me chuckle that in one of the stories, I think one of the, um, uh, certainly the opposition police minister at the time was questioning the, the why should they shut Kalgoorlie just for a bikey funeral? Uh, and then literally the next day, this picture of Grierson's coffin in the hearse and all you could see, like to the distance, were chrome and black and leather and helmets and goggles. And it's, uh, you can um, just imagine, you know, Grandma Johnson from Boulder coming in to get her turnips and then <laughs> turning around and seeing these, like, clowns just driving down the centre of well, the street. Imagine what, imagine the carnage that could have happened if they hadn't closed the street. Absolutely, it was public safety. And the cops don't like the idea of, of allowing this to happen, but it was public safety, number one. And to be completely honest, back then... Short of bringing in the army, <laughs> there is no way they yeah. could have properly secured Kalgoorlie yeah. without a little bit of give and take yeah. with the bikies. There were just too many bikies. Yeah. Uh, and not happy bikies, either. No, no, they were obviously, I mean, but I don't know, bikies they are ever happy, no, but they, they were particularly unhappy. Whatever, no. Very, very unhappy, very suspicious. Um, and these are these are people who... Revenge is in their blood. This mm. is it's it's part of their code. Mm. So uh, I can't blame the cops for allowing this procession and allowing them to ride without helmets. It's a tradition called uh, I think it's called dipping the lid or mm-hmm. something like mm-hmm. tipping the lid or mm-hmm. dipping the lid, um, because they just needed to get through this to maintain law and order. Because no one knew what was going to happen next. No. And on his departure from Orobanda, Hancock was actually offered a place in the witness protection program and a new life um, somewhere, but 
um, being uh, the the big dog Silver Fox, he uh, he said no. Well, why would you? <laughs> You're the Silver Fox, yeah. six foot two, bulletproof, and he's got the biggest gang in Western Australia behind him. Mm. I mean, you got a hundred or so Gypsy Jokers. He had five thousand cops, <laughs> better armed, better trained. He actually felt safe. In the coming weeks, more incendiary actions. Explosions at Hancock's Orobanda home, the general store, the gold battery that he'd um, restored, and a, a caravan. Property by property, Orobanda was literally being blown off the map. The Premier and the Police Commissioner at the time were obviously outraged, vowing unlimited resources to crack down on the crime spree. Even Billy Grayson's sister pleaded for the violence to end and pleaded for police to find her brother's killer. But she also didn't want her name published. Silence upon silence. Police at the time had revealed very little about the circumstances of the execution of Billy Grayson. They said all angles needed to be investigated, they were hinted at they'd talked to every one of the 30 locals and there was also even a whisper whether it was an inside job. But it was obvious who the Gypsy Jokers believed had done it, even though they were also refusing to cooperate with the police and the state coroner in the investigation. That's their official line, <laughs> that they were refusing to cooperate. Mm. There was an incident out at Orobanda involving former Channel 7 reporter Howard Gretton. Mm. Howard was out there covering uh, the the explosion and the death of Billy Grierson. Uh, and he had chanced upon a meeting of police and bikies. Mm. And he had obtained footage of the Gypsy Jokers cooperating with police, talking to police at the crime scene. When the Gypsy Jokers realised that Howard had this footage, they went after him. And on a very lonely highway between Kalgoorlie and Orobanda, Howard Gretton and his cameraman were pulled off the side of the road by a half a dozen Gypsy Jokers who started kicking the crap out of the car, <laughs> demanding the tape and saying that they were going to kill him. So it was a very confronting. That's that's the environment that people mm. were operating in back then. Yeah. So, and the level or the or the passion for not to be seen to be talking with police at any level. Absolutely not. So we we kind of forget that with today's Nike bikies, where they are you know issuing social media posts about their latest you know drive-by shootings in the suburbs. This was a very different time. Bikies did not speak. This was a time when you really had the Gypsy Jokers, the Coffin Cheaters, Club Deros and God's Garbage. The Rebels were a very, very small, benign force. They mm. were toy bikies mm. at this stage of the game. If you were a bikie, you did not speak to cops. And the Gypsy Jokers were speaking to detectives. And it was on film and that's how, that's how passionate they were about being seen to adhere to the bikie code. Mm. So, obviously, the murder investigation was continuing, but there was an inquest uh, into Billy Grierson's death that was set down to start in September 2001. Mr Hancock was set to give evidence and be quizzed for the first time in public about what happened on that night in his pub the previous October. 
but he would never get the chance to give that evidence. Again, it's I struggle sometimes to say these words. A remotely detonated car bomb kills Hancock and his mate Lou Lewis as they were driving back from a Saturday at the races. And basically, all hell breaks loose. Something that you expect to see in Belfast, not in suburban uh, Western Australia. And there's a famous picture that, that no doubt you'll see on this video of the remnants of that car and it it's it's it still causes you to catch your breath it is it's an extraordinary photo of the sheer devastation that this explosive caused that afternoon a metal chassis torn apart by the force of the explosion the two men inside the vehicle that's don and lou lewis had absolutely no chance of surviving there was shrapnel streets away Mm -hmm. and it was something that you'd expect to associate with the IRA mm. in the in the 1980s. Mm. Yeah. I, I read somewhere that they were still finding debris weeks later, um, and there was a piece of a motherboard or or some you know some sort of electronic from the car that they found wedged in some tiles in a pool about 400 meters away. So that that's that's flown in and then got and it's like the, so the force of this explosion it, it could be heard kilometers away um and i mean god knows what it must have been like to, if you were in one of the neighbors in that street that afternoon well the one thing that you can find in the goldfields pretty easily is explosives you walk into the front bar of the exchange hotel at the right time of day you can buy explosives for cash that was the case back in the day and so obviously they had stockpiled an enormous amount of ordnance mm. and there was enough there to kill Don Hancock five times. Mm. And so Lou Lewis, who was Don Hancock's very good mate, completely innocent, never had anything to do with certainly any bikey shooting in Orobanda. His funeral drew 1,000 mourners. Hancock's funeral had 2,000 mourners and the public level of pressure meant that there was $500,000 reward offered by the government for any information about who might have put both these men in their graves, which was at the time the highest reward ever offered. And thus began the first bikey crackdown Mm. in Western Australia. Mm. So there have probably been two dozen since then, the sum total of which has resulted in the number of bikies going from 200 to 700, the number of gangs going from 4 to 14. So I don't know how effective said crackdowns have been. Uh, But this was the first time we saw the dark underbelly of OMCG activity. Up until then, you kind of knew they existed. You kind of knew who Eddie Withnall was. You you knew Bindoon Rock. Uh, you probably were smoking some weed that had been supplied by a bikey, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. But in the days before meth, they weren't writ large across headlines everywhere. That changed the moment that car bomb uh, was detonated in Lathlane. Yeah. Um, and the architect of that first bikey crackdown was a chap named Jim McGinty. He was the crusading attorney general in Jeff Gallup's government. 
Uh, and didn't really look like Elliot Ness, Jim no. McGinty, but I think he fancied himself as a little bit of a he maybe a, a, an older, wiser Elliot Ness. He, we have to be a little bit careful because Jim is uh, a sitting member of the Independent <laughs> Media Council, which <laughs> adjudicates complaints against people that. like you and I. So let's let's move on quickly. Very good man. He's very a very good, politician. good man. Handsome and kind. Uh, Jim's brother, bizarrely, this is a three degrees of Australian underworld. Jim's brother was a chap who was one of the original bikies in Western Australia, believe it or not. His brother went by the nickname The Preacher, very active in the early 70s, which is when bikie gangs first created themselves in Western Australia. So there you go. Fun fact for the next outlaw motorcycle gang quiz night that you might attend. <laughs> We've had a major act of terrorism in our suburbs. We've got to deal with it. Raids on clubhouses and brick houses became an almost daily occurrence. Operation Zircon was looking for Don Hancock's killer or killers and Avalon was targeting bikies and the Gypsy Jokers in general. One such visit discovered a secret room built into the Gypsy Jokers Maddington headquarters, confirming to police the gang not only had something to hide, but actually somewhere to hide it. They even bugged Billy Grierson's grave. And one man during this activity was scooped up in a very public arrest outside Perth's law courts in full view of public and gathered media. Sidney Snot Reed. He could have come from the Outlaw Motorcycle Gang Central Casting Agency. Beard, flano, siggies, and dark, mean eyes. He was initially charged with illegal possession of an unlicensed F-357 revolver. That added to existing charges of GBH following a boulder bashing involving a hammer and a baseball bat. But... The police kept very, very close track of Reed and his clubmates. And on Valentine's Day 2002, they came calling again. And this time, they weren't carrying flowers and chocolates. Led by Detective Superintendent David Caporn, who had been moved off the hunt for the Claremont killer to head up Operation Zircon, he led the interrogation. And it soon became clear to Reed that police had pinned him as the man who planted the bomb, which Premier Jeff Gallup said had been an act of urban terrorism in a leafy Perth suburb. What police were faced with, though, was the bikie's unbreakable code of silence. What Reed was faced with was 30 years plus in prison. And so, Reed did the unthinkable. He confessed, he admitted to planting the bomb, and he also pointed the finger at fellow jokers, including one of his closest mates, Graham Slim Slater. Just days after that arrest, in an entirely secret court hearing, Reed pleaded guilty to the double murder and was sentenced to life with 15 years in prison to serve. The minimum that could be delivered under Western Australian law. That was on the proviso he gives evidence against his former gangmates, a deal which authorities touted as the first of its kind in Australia. Western Australia 
had a bikey supergrass. Halves, a big deal for WA Police, but a big deal for Sydney Snot Reed as well. Well, Sid put his life in the hands of police officers, the people who'd been pursuing him for the best part of his adult life. Mm. Uh, and so he'd also put himself in the crosshairs of the Gypsy Jokers, which had proved that they could get to anyone. If you can get a retired CIB chief, you're going to be able to get an ex-gang member mm. who's in jail because bikies know people in jail and people in jail do things for bikies. <laughs> so it was a huge call for Reed to do this and it was out of sheer desperation. He was facing 30 years in jail and then all of a sudden these cops came in with this sweetheart deal, mm. 15 years for a double murder and not just that. It was 15 years in a prison pretty much of his choosing mm. was on the East Coast. His girlfriend was flown to visit him three or four times a year as part of this deal. And when he finished his sentence, he was allowed to go into witness protection, he was given money, he was looked after, etc., etc. But in the back of his mind, the entire time he was serving in jail, in the back of his mind, every minute of every day subsequently, he's out there somewhere as we speak, mm. he is wondering, when I turn that car on, What's going to happen? Yeah. It's not every day you sell your soul twice. It sounds like that's what he's done because talking to the cops, no, no. Giving up your mates, no, no. Admitting to a double murder, I mean, is a big enough conversation to have. And uh, it was it was all done after a long interrogation. But, um, I mean, he basically just came to the conclusion, I haven't got a choice here. He had some very convincing police officers in that interview room. Uh, they're police officers that had worked on him for a long time. One one officer particularly had become a, a, a close confidant mm. of Sid Reid. Um, and I've spoken to that cop a few times. He said that Sid knew when you were lying. And you knew when Sid knew when you were lying because he would put his head back and he'd close his eyes like this. And he'd just take a deep breath. And as soon as you did that, you knew that you were in trouble because that unbreakable sort of sense of trust that you need to get someone to confess like this was starting to get shaky. But they, they did get him over the line um, and uh, it was one of the great breakthroughs in WA policing. Do you think when those detectives went home um, to their wives or girlfriends or boyfriends or whatever, they they... They, they could look themselves in the mirror and be think, we, yes, we've done... We, I'm happy that we've done this deal with this man. They thought that Sid Reid was a total scumbag. They thought the Gypsy Jokers at large, en masse, were far worse. Hmm. Well, Graham Slater, still a member of that gang, immediately denied anything to do with the Hancock car bombing after being fingered by his mate Snot Reed. He claimed he'd been at his mum's house in Northam sleeping off a hangover when the bomb had gone off. And he got to argue that denial one of Australia's most argumentative but effective defence barristers. Colin Lovett, QC, hailed from Melbourne, but his connections to Perth and its legal fraternity were strong uh, and affectionate at times. 
He had represented a fellow lawyer during the elongated legal skirmishes through the Mickelberg convictions, which we know were secured by Don Hancock. He'd got Chopper Reed off. He got Greg Domasevich off, who was charged with the murder of toddler Jaden Lesky in 1997. But he hadn't quite been able to get himself off a $10,000 fine for calling a Queensland magistrate a complete cretin in court. Away with words, which he used with devastating effect as Graham Slater went on trial amid unprecedented security at WA's Supreme Court in September 2003. Prosecutors said the bombing was pure revenge, with Reed the planter and Slater the detonator via a mobile phone. In underbelly style, Slater was alleged to have whispered, Rest in peace, Billy, as the fatal button was pushed. Lovett pushed numerous buttons of his own, most of them surrounding the deal between the police and Reed. He forced Detective Caporn to reveal what sweets and treats he was given in prison. A TV, an Xbox for his cell, cash payments, snacks, cigarettes, and these visits from his girlfriend, paid for by the state. And when Reed took the stand, Lovett took him apart. He got Reed to admit he lied to the police. He got Reed to say he had not told the whole truth. He agreed he had admitted details of how the bomb was armed and detonated. He admitted lying to police about Mr. Slater giving him an ultimatum to kill or leave the Jokers. He was even forced to admit there was tension between him and Slater, that they had angry words and a push and shove before the bombing. And in closing, Lovett said the police had shamelessly discarded the rule book, that Reed was demonstrably dishonest and his credibility was shot to pieces. Ultimately, the jury believed what Colin Lovett said and not Sid Reed, and they acquitted Graham Slater of murder. Harves, this trial uh, was the first major one I covered um, in Perth after I fell off the boat all those years ago. Uh, the things that stick out in my mind still, the tension, um, the security was unprecedented, even, and I covered stuff at the Old Bailey and all that, but I'd never seen anything like this. And I also remember the gasps in court and the tears from Don Hancock's family and Lou Lewis's family when Graham Slater was acquitted. Um, what do you remember about that trial? Anyone walking near the court at that point would have thought the Gypsy Jokers are more dangerous than a Mexican cartel. You had TRG in helicopters mm. buzzing the courtroom. You had their star witness being transported in an armoured van in a dedicated freeway lane mm -hmm. all the way to court. Every day you for had, weeks and weeks and you weeks. You had more cops with more firepower than the Ukrainian army patrolling the streets. So you walk in there and you've got to try and think of guilt versus innocence, etc. You're going to think the Gypsy Jokers did this. Mm. They are dangerous, dangerous people. Look mm. at what the police have to do just to protect us from them, these terribly violent, violent men. So I'm not at all surprised that the cops 
and probably the public thought this was a lock. Mm. It was going to be guilty. Mm. They had a rollover witness. They had so much evidence. I mean, there was... I can remember Tim Atherton, the former Deputy Police Commissioner, telling me once that when the bomb went off, the cops were expecting something to happen, so they had everyone's phone ready to go. They were up on every Gypsy Joker's phone. They did something called a ping, where they basically work out where the owners of those phones are. And a lot of the owners of those phones happened to be in and around Lathlane, even though they had no connection to the suburb. So the second the bomb went off, there were Gypsy Jokers everywhere. Even with all that, Colin Lovett still managed to get the walk. They also had a camera... Uh, a, a hidden camera outside or, or stationed around in and around Don Hancock's home, which actually recorded the bomb going off. And I, rem- I remember watching that footage in court and being, you know, quite fearful of what we were going to see. But as I explained, like it was just, it just the whole, I mean, you know, we're not talking the 4K high D, you know, your ultra mm. HD stuff we have today. It was, you know, pretty rudimentary back in 2000. But you, you could clearly see the, the, the car pulling in. You could clearly see the trailer behind. You could clearly see the two silhouettes, the silhouettes of the two men inside. And then it was just a flash. It just, it, and, and it was just, just a flash. It was. It was. It was like the whole world went white yeah. for for those for those seconds. It was and quite clearly the work of someone who was into some deep criminal shit. Yes, and someone with access to um, some high-powered explosives. Um, and the the other abiding memory for me is waiting outside court for um, as as we have to do, and people don't like us doing, but we have to do to try and get a quote or a comment from the family of. Of those men, which we did, and Elizabeth Hancock, um, Don's widow, uh, did stop and tearfully told us uh, how devastated she was again um, by uh, this loss. And in the background, uh, whether he knew that what we were doing or not, or whether he knew we could hear him or not, Graham Slater was in the back of a police van ready to go back to his cell, and he was whooping in delight. And so Graham, the, Graham Slater, slats. Yeah. He is one of the most ferocious bikies in Australia. Certainly was back then. He's mm. getting on a bit now, of mm. course. Uh, he, at that point, was the sergeant-at-arms for the Gypsy Jokers. And you mentioned previously that he had a bit of a run-in with um, Sid snot Reed. Well, mm. it was more than a run-in. Mm. Sid had been using drugs intravenously. Mm-hmm. And using the needle is taboo in the Gypsy Jokers. You just can't do it. And they found out about this, and it was it was Slats's job to deliver a beating mm. to Sid Reed. So there was a lot of bad blood there. And I think that the combination of thinking he was going to go to jail, uh, Graham was probably convinced that he was done for, the rage that he had that Reed had betrayed him mm. and his club... It all just percolated, and he couldn't stop himself from celebrating. Mm, yeah, and, the, and the, it, just the juxtaposition of those two sounds: um, Elizabeth Hancock in tears, and 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 Graham Slater um, obviously delighted. Um, it's interesting you say how fearsome he was, because in court I remember him just being quite funny, uh, amusing, knockabout. Um, he had the flannel on, 
um, because you know it, it would be quite a brave move to do at any time. But Colin Lovett put his client on the stand to tell his side of the story, um, which he did. And over those days, I got the impression that the jury quite liked him, which uh, I, I reckon Lovett had weighed up. Uh, they certainly didn't like Reed. I mean, no one liked Reed. I mean, he was uh, he, the, the, the you could smell the grime on him from you know from. Slater looked and like he was it. on video link. That's what I was about to say. You could smell him, but he was miles away somewhere else giving him his evidence. But Slater there did it in the court, and it was a masterstroke by Lovett. He well, Slater looked like Ned Kelly. Mm. He sounded like Ned Kelly, mm. and he had that kind of raffish kind of outlaw. Yeah, I'm a bit rough around the edges, but we only keep it within ourselves. Yeah, all that. And I, you know, I live my life according to a bikey code, and there's some honour in that, which is all crap obviously mm. but he was a convincing convincing person um when he was up on on the stand yeah so <clears throat> the acquittal of graham slater devastated the wa police but they had another problem the murder of billy grierson still unsolved and they also had on oath evidence now given by police in that courtroom that Don Hancock had been a suspect in that murder. Senior police publicly urged the coroner's office at this point to take up the cudgels. And so they did, eventually, holding a triple inquest into not only Billy Grierson's death, but Don Hancock and Lou Lewis as well. And that hearing provided some startling revelations. Witnesses ready to testify about seeing an angry Mr. Hancock leave the pub on that night to go and get his gun after his run-in with the Jokers. That the two detectives who led the initial investigation into Grierson's shooting had been drinking with Don Hancock and his wife at the pub that afternoon. And when they then spoke to Don Hancock after the shooting, he had showered, he was wearing fresh clothes. His other clothes couldn't be found. And he just felt like eating an orange, which detectives of a certain era might know that citrus tends to wipe away gunshot residue. Funny that. There was also, in the inquest, the extraordinary sight of a string of senior bikies turning up to publicly recount sometimes in tears, the moment they saw their friend shot dead in the dirt. And ultimately, there was a state coroner willing to go on the record to say that a significant body of evidence existed suggesting a senior retired police officer had shot dead a stranger in cold blood because of a few curse words in front of his daughter. But he didn't have enough to conclude that Hancock was the killer. Halves, uh, according uh, during the inquest, more detail, more revelations, but at the end of it, nothing definitive. And ironically, uh, the coroner ruled that the revenge murder of Hancock had severely limited his search for the truth about the death of Billy Grayson. Well, Hancock's death had severely limited the search for the truth because Hancock did it. Mm. You don't have to be. Jimmy McNulty from The Wire to put that one together, let's face it. 
did I do? You don't have to be Matlock, it's pretty obvious. The guy has an argument with some bikies at his pub after they abuse his daughter. He kicks them out. He then goes and gets a gun. He then is seen freshly laundered, <laughs> having showered in new clothes. He is eating an orange to get rid of some residue potentially off his hands. He had motive. He had the ability to, to do the crime. Everyone knows Don Hancock killed Billy Grierson. And sitting in the inquest as I did that was the that was the only conclusion you could come to it was it was the only logical conclusion um his son um I wouldn't say sensibly but his son loyally after the inquest suggested that it might have this this suggestion of it being an inside job because Billy Grierson wanted to leave the gang because his wife was pregnant and he wanted to get out of the life and and blah 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 so they'd done it themselves um, it'd be a hell of a shot. Um, it'd be a hell of a uh, um, a good way to get out of Orobanda on a motorcycle at that time of night without being seen. Um, it didn't. Re- Sometimes when it looks like a duck, <laughs> it walks like a duck, and it quacks like, like a, a duck. duck. It's a duck. Yeah, yeah. So next year we'll mark the twenty fifth anniversary of the death of Billy Grierson. And no one has ever been charged with his murder. And it's likely no one ever will be. He never got to meet his son, Isaac. He also now has three grandchildren who have never met him, obviously. Graham Slater was released on bail after being acquitted of Hancock's murder. And later, he was acquitted of the Orobanda firebombings as well. And now he is a free man too. Sid Reed was released from prison in 2018 under a new identity and is living somewhere secretly. A free man, but as Harves has alluded to, probably not a comfortable one. But one man is still in prison. Gary White, who was around the Gypsy Jokers at that time and whose name also came out of Sid Reed's mouth. He was charged with helping to destroy the main buildings in Orobanda, but also charged with something else, something police didn't even know about before Sid Reed started talking. Anthony Tapley was a drug addict whose disappearance in 2001 was not even reported in the media. His family, however, were desperate for answers. And then, in March 2002, out of the blue, police began digging at a property in Northam. Charred human remains were found. They were those of Aunt Tapley, and they were found because Sid Reed had told them they were there, and he claimed he knew who put them there. Gary White. Based on that testimony, given in court in one of WA's fastest murder trials, White was convicted of the murder of Anthony Tapley. And all these years later, he's still in there, based on the word of Sid Reed. Harves, you've dug deep into the case of Gary White, and many, many people have serious reservations about that conviction. Many people think that Sid Snot Reed killed Anthony Tapley mm. and pinned it on Gary White. Mm. 
if you're sitting there in a police interview room and the cops are sitting there saying, Sid, you've got to give us more, you've got to give us more, you're at 30 years, okay, now you're down to 25 years, now you're down to 20, we need more, Sid. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he says, ah, I can solve another murder for you. Yeah, if you go up to this place in Northern and have a scratch around, you'll find some human remains. Lo and behold, the cops go out there and they say, yeah, yeah, you're right, uh, who done it? Oh, it weren't me. I was there. Yeah, I was there. I was kind of around there, but it was. It weren't me. It was this guy, Gary White. Pin the blame on him. Perhaps gets out of an, a, a murder conviction himself, and then to add insult to injury, potentially gets another reduced sentence for the murders he admits he did commit. That's Lou Lewis and Don Hancock. So, it was a smelly, smelly conviction. This bloke who was subsequently found out to be a liar, Colin Lovett, tore him apart in the bombing trial. But this was before that. The Gary White trial was held before the bombing trial. Mm. And at that point in time, Sid Reid had not been exposed as a serial liar. He was considered to be a reasonably credible witness. Oh, why would he lie? He's putting his life at risk. He's, he's given up all this, everything. Everyone would agree now that if Gary White had gone on trial after, hadn't been the first person that Sid put in the bin, had been the second or third, he would never have been convicted mm. because by that stage Sid Reid was not a credible witness. Mm. You simply could not believe anything that was coming out of the man's mouth. Mm. Gary White's family have uh, waged a long battle to have this conviction overturned, looked at again. There's a very comprehensive website that people can look at that's got a transcript of the whole trial on there, which is, you know, even some of the stuff that was held in closed court, which probably shouldn't be up there, but it, it's there. And it and it makes it, it's, it's fascinating reading and made me, again, going through for this, getting ready for today quite uneasy about some of the stuff that 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 went on so w w what's happened with the case of Gary White in terms of appeal and what what could happen so Gary White was convicted he appealed and he didn't even get into court with the appeal they chucked it out back then that's all you had uh, a little while ago the current attorney general of Western Australia um, he passed laws that allow someone who has exhausted their appeal to lodge a fresh appeal if they can prove there is fresh, new, compelling evidence about their innocence. Now, Gary White's legal team and supporters are in the process of doing that at the moment, and they are at the, the end of a very, very long, expensive project to put together an appeal, which will be lodged at some point in the next few months. And we could see this whole sorry, corrupt, violent tale replayed again mm. in a West Australian court. I wonder if Sid Reid would have to pop his head up at some point. Sid Reid right now <laughs> is without a doubt the most nervous man in Australia. Because Sid Reid, if he's alive, that's a big if, if Sid Reid is alive, he would know that Gary White is considering an appeal. Now, think about this. The only reason the Gypsy Jokers 
wouldn't want to kill Sid Reed because Sid Reed could potentially get Gary White out of jail. Mm -hmm. If Gary White gets out of jail. Sid Reed has no reason to be alive. Mate, thank you for spending some time to talk us through, take us through uh, an extraordinary chapter in WA criminal history. They which don't is, make them like that anymore, well, do they? Well, it sounds like we might be just getting one bonus episode at the end. I hope so. And thanks again for the listeners and the viewers for joining us. Any questions or suggestions for Court in the Act, please send them through to courtintheact at wanews.com.au. And remember... If you want to know what's going on in court, don't get caught short. Get caught in the act instead. See you next week. 